It's your boy, and welcome to episode 54 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, everywhere you find good podcasts. Take a minute, rate and review the show, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others should also, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, We ended the last episode on kind of a weird note, Uh, your boy had the hiccups, and uh... I'm one of these people, I'm not like my girlfriend who gets one hiccup and they're fine, and they sort of disappear. When I get the hiccups, I get the hiccups. And I shit you not, from the time those hiccups started at the end of the last episode, I had them for two days straight. That night I went to bed at like, well I tried to go to bed at midnight, I was tossing and turning till six in the morning, and uh, did not get a wink of sleep. And... There were some breaks that I had in those two days. Like the, Every time I get the hiccups, I do the same thing. I go to Google. I try to find some sort of cure. And I always stumble on the same solutions, right? And they're so varied and so diverse. You're pretty much guaranteed that they don't fucking work, right? You have one, one of them says, like, pull your tongue. Another one says, put some sugar on the back of your tongue. Some says, hold your breath. One is, like, uh, uh, put an ice cube, <laughs> put an ice cube at the top of your spine and right under your, like a quarter inch below your jaw. And you're like, all right, it's pretty fucking clear. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. And then you start freaking yourself out because it's like, you start looking up these solutions. And if you go to ask Jeeves or Lycos or whatever the fuck you're doing, um, you start stumbling on WebMD and it's like, no matter what constellation of symptoms you have that can be traced back to a brain tumor. (laughs) So it's like, whether it's the hiccups or uh, an ache in your big toe, if you have a symptom, it's probably linked back to a brain tumor on some level. Um, And uh, so I don't know. I always, you know, it's worked in the past, and this was the only thing that worked in two days that gave me any any kind of break from the hiccup. So if you happen to have them, try this out. Uh, You're going to have to Google it. I'm sure there's a YouTube video somewhere or or something, but you'll have to take a, a, a glass. I use a pint glass. You fill it up with water and you drink from the opposite side of the cup as you lean over. So, um, uh, yeah, you'll have to look that up, but that's the only thing that worked. Now, the problem with that, with that is that it didn't always work, and it only took multiple times. So, when you've had the hiccups for two days, and your literally your entire esophagus is just, like, on fire. Like, I don't have um, <clears throat> acid reflux, or whatever people talk about. I don't think I do, anyway. Um... But when you're literally hiccuping for two days straight without any respite, not only is your entire diaphragm sore, just from the 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 the, uh, the muscle spasming, it's like there's like acid in your throat, the esophageal acid. Um, it was it was incredibly painful, and even the times that I did have a break from them, I was so terrified to trigger them again because it's like if I ever if I if I tried to have anything to eat or drink other than like water. They would kick up again, and um, yeah, it was awful. It was some of the most uncomfortable two days I've ever had. And when I finally got over it, I was. Um, it was like I had. Um, sorry, I'm I'm stifling a burp and a yawn at the same time. So um, it was like I had been on vacation. You know, I had been on a. I was I was so fixated on these hiccups when I finally was through with them, 
it was like, uh, it's like I had been uh, held hostage for the last few days and I was like returning to my life. And, uh, and yeah, I didn't sleep very well for two days. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's funny though. I don't know what it is. It's like you have that solution, right? Drinking on the other side of the cup while you're sort of bent over. Um, and it's like every time that works or when I get the hiccups and that's the solution, it's like I announce to myself that I'm going to remember it. Like, ah, from now on, I have the solution. When I get the hiccups again, this is what I'm going to do. This will be my go-to. And I always forget. I was saying it's sort of like my, it's like my toothpaste. Now that sounds crazy, but unless you're, unless you're like have a dedicated brand of toothpaste, like I know my deodorant, I get Old Spice original and I've been doing that shit for years. So don't think that fucking rebranding bullshit worked on me. I've been fucking using Old, old Spice forever. Um, although it actually like, I don't know what the fuck did we talk about on this podcast, but it actually kind of burns now sometimes. Sometimes I'll get a stick of it and it's like, it burns my armpit. So I'm probably getting armpit tumors also. But um, when it comes to toothpaste, I don't know what the fuck I use. I literally just brush my teeth. I could not tell you what toothpaste I have. And every time I go to Walgreens or wherever I go to buy toothpaste, I just grab whatever looks cheap. And it's like, I feel like no matter what I grab, it's never the same thing twice. And sometimes, this is what I'm saying about the whole cure for the hiccups and toothpaste. Sometimes I'll find one that's like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, this is kind of delicious. This is kind of yummy. This kind of makes brushing my teeth fun. You'd think I'd write it down or take a photo or something or remember it, but I don't. I just think, oh, I have to go to the, I have to go buy some toothpaste. I show up, I'm staring at a wall, at a wall of toothpaste brands, and I don't know which one to pick. You know, I don't know if it's tartar control or plaque protection or, some of them have like that racing stripe, right? It's like the the sort of tricolor toothpaste. One's for fortification, one's for plaque, and one's for healthy gums or something like that. I remember one time years ago, I had a cinnamon, I didn't, I didn't buy it intentionally, but I ended up getting this like cinnamon toothpaste. That was fucking bizarre. It was like brushing your teeth with candy. I was like, this can't be good for you. This tastes, how can toothpaste taste like a cavity? Fucking crazy. So anyway, yeah, there's a couple things too. I was, um, I don't normally do this, but in the recent weeks, I've been listening back to some episodes of the podcast and there's a couple things I'm going to try to keep in mind moving forward. I say the word literally like every other word. I say the word ostensibly like every other word. And, um, so those things I can focus on. I'm, I'm really going to try to be conscious, conscious of not saying them. Uh, the one thing I'd like to address, which I'm not going to do is the word, um, I say um all the time. It's the way it is. Maybe at some point in the future that will take care of itself. But if I try to focus on that, I'm not going to be able to think of anything. Um, exactly. But anyway, it was kind of nice listening back to the podcast. It's it's weird that I listened to it and I actually, even the last episode I thought was god-awful as I was doing it, I listened back. It's not the best episode, but it's not the worst either not that bad at all. And actually, the reason I was thinking about it was because I was uh, encouraging you to do the vote forward thing, right? To register for vote forward, adopt some, you know, people who are unlikely to vote and send them a letter requesting that they do so. I think me and my girlfriend have done almost like 200 letters so far. And I'm, your boy's fucking quick with them, man. They say you can do like 20 letters in an hour. 
I did like 40 letters last night in 45 minutes. So if you're smart about it and you don't give yourself too much work to do, you know, you just have a short, thoughtful message and you write pretty quickly, you can knock these fucking things out. So try it out. At least do five. You could definitely do five between now and I think they moved the, um, I think the ship date now is like October, um, 17th or something like that. So anyway, if you have some envelopes lying around and if you don't, you could, you know, you could fucking Amazon those, but, um, get some envelopes, get some stamps and, uh, send out 20 letters. Cause I don't know about you. I, I don't, I don't know outside of my, my single vote. I don't really know how to, I don't know how to participate meaningfully in politics these days. Um, but this feels like something I can do. And so I'm going to do it. Um, and actually it's kind of fun. Like, I, I think a lot of people don't like the monotony of it. I fucking love it. Like when I was working, I, I love repetitive monotonous tasks. Like if, if you, if I lived in a time where you handled me a sack of potatoes and said, dice those or chop those, I would fucking love it. That would be a great job for me. Um, my, one of my first jobs were, was working at Sam Goody, which is a CD store if the kids know what that is, but, um, it was a CD store chain in the mall and uh, I was a fucking horrible employee. But what I loved to do is when we got the shipment of new CDs in, basically, uh, when you would buy a CD back in the day, it usually came in some plastic case that the protective case that they had to remove at the counter. It was like an anti-theft device. Um, one, it, it sort of made access to the CD difficult, but it, but it also, I almost said ostensibly, but um, it had like a chip on it also. So if you tried to walk through the metal detector at the front door, uh, it would it would set the alarm off. But my favorite thing was to just go in the back for hours and just put all the new shipments into these plastic cases. Like the one I remember most is 50 Cent came out with his Get Rich or Die Trying record. And we got like, I don't know, a couple hundred of them probably. And I just spent hours just putting them in these plastic sleeves it was my fucking favorite but you can do that with these letters it's the same thing over and over again you know you fill out the letters you fill out the envelopes you lick them up and you stamp them down and you send them off on october 17th and uh i don't know for me it's a fun way to spend my time especially if you're just going to be listening to a podcast watching a show on netflix you can busy yourself with this at the same time instead of stuffing your face with doritos um or i don't know i'm trying to think of a healthy alternative but let's be honest, how many of you are just uh, wolfing down celery and peanut butter, right? Um, instead of stuffing your face with Doritos, you can stuff envelopes, right? And try to engage in the political process. So I'm not going to be preachy about it, right? Like, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I just think if you happen to be the type of person who's wanting to uh, try to contribute uh, in a way that's more impactful than your single vote, this might be one way to do it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at my podcast idea, Google doc and the thing, I don't know that you want to fucking hear this stuff, but one thing I thought was kind of interesting is me and my girlfriend go on long, long walks. And, um, a lot of it, um, has been walking around what has been my neighborhood for a long time now, but it is now sort of her neighborhood as well. She's sort of relocated nearby. And no matter how far we go in any one direction, when we go for our walk, it, the, the thing that we see the most of which we always look at and go, holy shit, this is here now, is we see a lost dog flyer for a dog named Ponyo who's gotten away from their owner. I should really tear down one of these things and try to scan it online and share it with people, but it's like, 
it's like the same person who put these Ponyo posters up is the same person who's in charge of the PR for for Shen Yun. Do you know Shen Yun? It's the uh, the Chinese dancing that's really a cult, I guess. I don't want to disparage them, but you should look into this. Like Shen Yun, five thousand years in the making. And there's especially in the Bay Area, we have posters for this shit everywhere. So if you live in the United States, actually, it's probably worldwide, honestly, but uh, most of us know, like, none of us knew Shen Yun in, like, the last three years, and all of a sudden, it's the thing that we all know. Whoever's in charge of the posters and the promotion for Shen Yun is in charge of putting up these Ponyo Lost Dog posters. They're literally everywhere. Every residential street, every major street, and it's like, holy fuck, if anyone deserves to get their dog back, it's Ponyo's owners. Right? Like... First first of all, I don't know, I didn't realize I had this many thoughts about it, but fucking lost animal posters are fucking crazy now. Like, before it used to just be lost dog, and it'd have a picture and their phone number. Because it's like, yeah, whatever you can do, right? If you happen to see this dog, maybe you'll scoop it up or not. Now, it's like they have their fucking dog's biography on it. They have the pedigree, they have the name, they have a, a picture of it. And then they have fucking instructions for how to engage with that animal. Don't call out, don't chase... Animal has environmental sensitivities. They have their whole pedigree and name. It's like, just give me the picture and count yourself lucky if I do anything. Right? (sighs) Such a scrooge. Anyway, but if anyone deserves to find their dog, it's the owners of Ponyo. So, the point that arises from that is what? I don't know. Let's hope uh, Ponyo finds his way home soon. Although maybe not. See, I had this thing years ago. My brother, uh, I've, ta- I've gushed about my brother's dog. He has a bully. Uh, it's a beautiful dog. And actually, he was just telling me. Uh, his wife's parents were just in town. They bought a home in their new, in their new city. Um, the wife's parents came to kind of help um, fix things up, see the place, etc. And uh, since they've left, they've been sending them photos of bullies also. So they might be in the market for a dog. Basically, everyone who comes into contact with this dog wants one just like it. They really won the fucking lottery with animals. Do you know what I mean? And I know everybody feels that their dog's special, but I mean, really and truly, like, every once in a while, that dog comes along that is just, like, special. You know, my buddy Tom, who we were talking about on the podcast, right? I ran into him while he was running. Me and my girlfriend were out walking. We ran into my old music buddy Tom. Uh, he has a new dog now, uh, but he had a dog named Barkley who passed away about a year ago. Phenomenal dog. Very, very special dog. Um, uh, my parents had uh, some friends growing up who had a golden retriever named, it started with an L, Lady, not Lassie, obviously, but a beautiful dog. I mean, and a really good dog. When that dog died, I was fucking sad, you know? But, um... But yeah, one time my brother, when we were in Tucson, he was driving down the street with some friends and they just saw this lost dog in the middle of the street, right? And they were at this major intersection and they just call out to the dog and he literally just jumps in my brother's car, right? And so my brother takes the dog home, tries to sort of, my brother had like, um, he lived in like a duplex. He had a little kind of running area around the back, not quite a backyard, but you know, a place where you would probably put a dog if you had one. So he kept it back there. And for whatever reason, my brother was like, I don't know, I can't hold on to this dog. I'm working all day. And so he brought the dog over my place. And normally at that time, my place was a fucking disaster. Like it looked like a bomb went off inside of it. It was just a fucking mess. 
And for whatever reason that day, I just decided I'm going to clean this fucking place up. And I spent all day making it spick and span. I literally, shit, I'm not supposed to say literally, but I cleaned for all day and I just, for, for whatever reason, decided to take a nap. And I don't know how this happened. Maybe my front door, excuse me, maybe my huh, front door was unlocked. But my memory is I'm laying on my sofa and my brother's standing there with the dog. And he's just kind of looking around the place and he's like, and of course he's trying to butter my biscuit because he's about to fucking pawn this dog off on me. But he goes, you know what? Um, uh, I see how clean this place is and it lets me know that, yeah, this dog is for you. Like, and, and, and it did kind of have a feeling of the planets aligning type of thing. Like why of all days would I make my, my place sort of spick and span? But, uh, so he drops the dog off. I end up having this thing for like two weeks. I ended up calling it blue. I don't know why. I think its eyes were blue or something. But I kind of got attached to the dog, you know? And it was like after two weeks, it's like I, I don't know how we came to this idea, but we decided, you know, we really have to do our due diligence. Like we didn't see any lost dog posters, but if I was really going to keep the dog for good, I really had to do my due diligence. And so we made our own found dog posters. Dude, how fucking good are we? Like how many people do that? You know, it's one thing to post your Ponyo poster and talk about how you want people to engage with your animal. But how many people, how many, how often do you say a found dog poster? Well, I guess now you'd probably just do it on uh, Craigslist or uh, what's that app that everyone uses like neighborhood or neighbors or, um, I don't fucking know. I'm not on any of that. I'm not on any of that stuff. But, um, but we put up these found dog posters and <laughs> I almost said literally again, but we put up these found dog posters and I had put, I had put up like four. It was like one, walk to the next light, put up another one, and then I see a, a lost dog poster. And so it was like I had to do the right thing, I had to call them, and within 20 minutes they came and picked up their dog, and your boy was fucking dogless again. So, that's kind of a fucking nightmare. But it happens. Anyway, I don't know how that, I don't know how that really came out of uh, my brother's dog. What did that have to do with anything? I don't know. Well, I don't know how much, um, I don't know. I want to talk about something. I don't know. It, it's kind of one of those things that becomes personal slash, um, slash, I don't know. I don't know what, I'm not, not that it's inappropriate, but, um, but, uh, I'll just start talking about it and, uh, and we'll, and we'll see how it feels. But, um, uh, this thing came up between my, me and my girlfriend like two weeks ago. So family is very important to my girlfriend and, um, not that I want to go into this necessarily, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm less attached to my family than she is. And so if my, if my girlfriend goes a long time without seeing her family, she, she has basically, she has a family shaped hole in her heart. Right. And so when that, when she doesn't see them, that it's like a major need for her that's not met. And it's like, when I spend time with her, when she sees her family, it's, I see it very clearly. It's palpable. I see her becoming rejuvenated, right? I see her light up. I see her, it's like you can see her tank being refilled. You know what I mean? And, um, and the shelter in place has been really hard for her for a number of reasons. Part of it is the family. Part of it is that she's just more of a, she has a bigger travel bug than I do. Like I don't like traveling for the most part. When I do it, I'm happy. When I, when I have done it, I've loved having had done it. Uh, even the living experience of it, I enjoy, but I don't anticipate it. I'm never sitting around saying, hmm, I can't wait for my next vacation, or I'm planning this or that trip, or hmm, I'd really like to go there. 
again, I've always enjoyed doing it. I'm always happy to have had done it, but I'm not seeking it out. And so for my girlfriend, for who those things are very important, shelter in place has been really difficult. She hasn't seen her family. She's not able to travel. It's a lot of the same shit every day. It's like fucking Groundhog's Day, right? Uh, And even our weekends, you know, we try to walk, we've done some camping, but it's just not enough. It's not really sustainable for my girlfriend. And so, you know, she's done what she, she can do. She's tried to make the best of it as she can. And, and I've tried to make the best of it also, right? I've been proactive about going camping. But, um, but uh, for her, it's just not enough, right? Um, she is now floating the idea of spending a month with her family uh, who are on the other side of the country. And so the, um, the proposition that they have proposed is that uh, she fly across the country, she quarantine for two weeks in the same city, and uh, assuming nothing happens, well, she'll get tested, and assuming that she tests negative, then she can spend the remainder of the time with the family. Um, and I think that's a pretty solid plan, right? Uh, her sister just had a baby, and her mother's with them. And so um, I think for her, that'd be phenomenal. Um, but that poses, that puts me in a strange situation. Um, apropos of nothing, I do not want to spend a month on the East coast. Um, I am a creature of habit. I like being domesticated. I like my routine. And although it's fine when it gets punctuated, like I love being on the trip and I love having had, having had done the trip, but I don't seek it out necessarily. And if I didn't do those things for five years, it'd probably be okay with me. You know, I really thrive with routine. Uh, And the idea of spending a month on the East Coast is not my idea of a great time. For me, it would feel like work. And so this is not just something that's coming up this one time with us, right? This is something that we sort of return to uh, in different areas, you know? And um, I think the reason this is important, and the only reason I wanted to talk about it, is because as I've thought through this issue, it's brought up this idea for me, which I think applies to all relationships, which is this idea of compromise, right? I mean, you hear it all the time. People say, oh, relationships are all about compromise. And that's true. I agree with that. And I, and the reason I agree with it first is one aspect of this, which I think it's very easy to get behind. Um, I think it is the case that no person that you're with will be able to be all the things that you want or need them to be for you, right? Like we all have areas of our life that are very important to us that we wish coincided with our partner's interests or their uh, desires, right? We all have needs that we wish were met that for one reason or another, our, our partner can't fulfill. And before you think that sounds too pessimistic, right? Like I, I, I think that is true. I think the important part is you have to decide, um, one, that's okay. You know, I think I don't want to sound too categorical at it, but it's like in this country, we have this sort of like mythologized version of uh, idea of romantic love. And we sort of let that be the compass that sort of steers us to whoever we think our long-term romantic partner is going to be. But on some level, it's like relationships are kind of a negotiation slash business decision. And I know that sounds kind of cold and not romantic, but I guess I'm thinking about this because in my anthropology class, we've had um, kind of two, two different sections where we look at Indian culture. Uh, one of them was about the caste system, 
and the other one was about uh, arranged marriages. And one thing I brought up, which I was I was surprised to hear myself say, because you know I'm not evangelical about arranged marriages myself, but someone posed this question in our sort of discussion where they were saying, um, "How can somebody ask? Uh, how can somebody how, like a parent, you know, how could a parent impose?" and arrange marriage on their children, knowing what it was like to have their own life path chosen for them. And I completely understand what this person is asking, but it doesn't take into account that for some people, even though it's not, um, you know, they would, they would call the opposite of this a companionate marriage, right? Or marrying for love, if you want to put it that way. But um, for some people, that's the ideal. But there are many people in arranged marriages who are very happy, Right. And um, if, if we spoke to them, sometimes what they report, I think, is that they came to love this person. And so there were some areas where the decision was made for them. You know, they were paired with somebody who maybe came from a similar class, who were definitely from a similar caste in Indian culture. But maybe the parents objectively thought were, you know, and I'm using this in quotes, compatible with them. Right. Um, and maybe they happened to be right. Right. So I think I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge two things here, I think. Well, let me finish my point about the arrangement. Um, I guess part of this, you know, I was talk, I was touching on ethnocentrism and then I fucking abandoned it on another episode. But the point I'm trying to make is not that it relates to my, my larger point, but it's something I think sometimes, which is we look at the way other people live their lives. For some reason, I'm thinking about like Middle Eastern women and I'm not trying to dismiss like the uh, atrocities that women in other parts of the world face, but there are lifestyle choices that people either make or subject themselves to or adopt. Um, it could be wearing a, a hijab, hijab, <laughs> wearing a hijab, living in an Amish community, um, uh, uh, restricting your diet in some way. But these lifestyle choices, arranged arrange marriage, I guess it's the third one, these lifestyle choices or practices actually solve, um, for the people who adopt them, they solve very real concerns or consequences from set the secular world, right? And so, yes, it's different. It's our different values. But from their perspective, there's a lot of things we engage in that are actually a problem, right? And, and by the like, you know, people who advocate for this sort of... Um, I don't know, romantic love, for lack of a better word. People who advocate for that being the rubric of uh, of a marriage, um, they don't really take into account that the divorce rate in this country is like over 50%. So it's not like we have the stats to demonstrate that the, that the way that we want to do things or the way we, we romanticize or mythologize the way to do things is have anything else figured out. Um, uh, but for people who adopt these types of lifestyle practices, it solves for very real problems in the world. Right, it sort of takes things off the table, and in many ways makes their life simple, and actually helps them avoid problems that other people encounter. Um, so what what the fuck am I saying? I, I guess I'm trying to make this point. Something about these successful arranged marriages both acknowledges that there are ways in which we have to be compatible, but there might be other things that we value that may not be as important. Right, that we think are important, or we talk about them as if they're important, but in the long run, they're not. You know, so I think what I'm trying to say is <laughs> one thing that has come up and I continue to talk about with my partner 
is something like travel is the type of thing like when we make a, a dating profile, right, or whatever. We identify it as our interests and we think about it and we go, that's the type of thing I would want in my partner. I would want my partner to love to travel. The thing I'm sitting across from my girlfriend saying is, I recognize that this is something that's important to you. I recognize that you wish I was the type of person who could just pack my bags and take off for a month and spend it on the East Coast with your family and be comfortable with that. I can look inside myself right now and tell you that that's not going to be me. I'm never going to be that way. And if that is the standard that I'm always held to, it's going to make me unhappy. Right? I need to feel comfortable also. Right? And that's not a revelation, but I'm, uh, that's the tension. Right? I'm kind of a house cat and a creature of habit and routine. And although my girlfriend is able to do those things, she's very disciplined and all that sort of stuff, she also has a little more wanderlust. She likes to get out there and see the world. She wants to have adventures, etc. <clears throat> Historically, I've been able to demonstrate that while that's not what I necessarily choose, would choose to do with my time, apropos of nothing, it's something I'm able to rise to the occasion and do, um, and that I've been able to do more over time, right? Um, so yes, what am I getting at? I'm getting at this idea of compromise, right? Um, it's very easy on paper to decide to come to some sort of compromise that feels fair with somebody. This is the word I'm trying to get at, fairness. And so you can sit down with your partner or anybody in life, but your partner specifically here and say, well, let's say the compromise is I go on three out of four trips. And one of those trips, you're just going to have to go by yourself or find another companion to travel with, right? And then conversely, I say, well, look, there's going to be times where I just have to be able to stay home because that's what I want to do. I, I'm, I should be able to pull that card and just say, look, I want to spend my weekend at home. I don't want to go camping. And that should be okay. Here's the, here's the deal. While that's true, what you don't want to do is feel committed to something because of this idea of being objectively fair. Because I've thought about this. As I've talked about it with my girlfriend, the thing I've tried to reiterate is you and I could come up to, uh, any, to terms that are exceptionally fair. That the most dispassionate third-party person would say, yeah, this is fair for everybody. But what if the fair compromise... What if it doesn't make you happy? It may be exceedingly fair. But if it doesn't make you happy, what's the point? And so it sounds like a silly thing to talk about. And I'm not saying there's necessarily thunder in paradise or whatever they say, trouble in paradise. You know, but me and my girlfriend have, have been together for four years, and it's something that, um, I don't know, lately it's been kind of a, a fulcrum of our conversations, right? You know, it's like anything in life, but whether it's your music career, right, or your romantic relationship, as you go through things, there are joints, right, or there are exits. It's like a, it's like a highway. I don't know, maybe it's a stupid analogy, but it's like, it's like a highway for which there are exits, Right. And it's like when you enter into certain periods of the relationship, it's like, well, we could get off here or, you know, next service is 23 miles. Let's let's make that leap. Right. And I don't know. I don't know how you identify these things. 
you know, maybe it's, uh, um, maybe it begins with farting in front of each other and then it becomes going to the bathroom in front of each other. And then it's, Hey, we should move in with each other. Um, uh, meet, uh, well, I guess I should have said meet my family in there somewhere, but you know what I mean? It's those types of things, right? And you decide if, if those are things that you want to do, it, it means the relationship's going well, more or less. And if you don't want to do them, it signals trouble in the relationship. So what I'm trying to say is I think, especially since we're at that point where it's like, I think at this point we have to decide if we're building our lives together and what does that really look like? You have to look at things that on the surface of it feel kind of stupid and petty, but actually it might be totems for bigger issues. And also, I don't know why I'm thinking of the I Ching all of a sudden, but it's like sometimes you have to look at things very closely in their germinal state before they develop into much bigger things. And I know I'm kind of spiraling out of control here. But look, this is not an entirely interesting topic, but the reason I think it's interesting and worth talking about is because it goes off in so many uh, different directions. And I think what this is really important for me to think about, and it's something I've encouraged my girlfriend to do, is think about who we're living for. And because there's something about this idea of compromise and fairness that feels very trapping. I think you can get trapped in this idea of fairness, right? You're holding yourself to a sort of objective standard, something outside yourself that you don't really have a lot of control over, right? And there's a sort of, I don't know, there's almost a more, or there's almost a, um, there's something about compromise and fairness that you feel compelled to acquiesce to, right? Like, well, if it's a fair compromise, that, that should, that should sort of be mutually satisfying for everybody. Um, but the reason I think this is important is because it's important to think about who you're living to satisfy, Right. And I guess, especially as we're at this point, as someone who's had a lot of therapy and has had to unravel a lot of the, I don't know, the operating system of my thinking, who I'm living for, who's, who's in the, who, who, what part of my brain is in the decision, is active in the decision making process? Is it the healthy, self actualized adult version of myself or is it the, um, uh, kind of hurt, wounded, traumatized, <laughs> traumatized child living inside me all the time. You know, it's, I've talked about that sort of like Jekyll and Hyde thing, like who's steering the ship, right? And so it's important to, especially for these huge life decisions about like who I'm going to spend my time with, that you really think about who am I living to satisfy? I mean, I'm kind of lucky in my own way. And I don't know what it sounds like, but it's observably true that I'm not entirely close with my family. There are members of my family I'm, pheno- I'm phenomenally close with. My brother is one of them. There are other members of my family that I'm not close with at all. And in some ways, that's liberating because I live my life for myself. You know, I know a lot of people, many adults, who still kind of live under the you know, it's not like a totalitarian type thing. It's not that they they live under the thumb or the sway or the authority of their parents, but that is their, I don't know if it's their standard of success or accomplishment, but they, it means a lot to them what their parents want for them. Right. And if your parents are well calibrated, that's great. Like if what your parents want for you is whatever makes you happy, that is a very powerful thing. Like, when I opened up for John Bellion, this musician, now phenomenally successful, but when I first opened up for him, he was playing at Bottom of the Hill in San Francisco. Now, he's one of the few people in my life who I've brushed shoulders with, who the minute I met them was like, 
oh, this person's going to be fucking successful. Right. But the time the, the, I've opened up for him twice. Another time was at Slim's like a year later. But when I was speaking with him, when we were just sort of talking about his upbringing, his parents believe in him. Like you could tell he came from a good family. Right. And for me, it was like he had harnessed that to propel him. Right. Like he fucking believed in himself and not like a delusional, uh, you know, kind of, um, I don't know. The perverse way. Like, I guess the opposite of that is you have people who have been like abandoned, right, by their parents. And so the, the driving mechanism of their success is like to win their parents' love that they never had. John Bunyan had something even better, which is like he, not only was he phenomenally motivated, he came from a good family. So it was like, that was like fuel in his tank, right? Like he could go turn to his family and be supported by them and refueled by them. Um, so yes, yeah, so that can be a good thing, right? But if you come from another type of family, uh, and I didn't have this either, but it's like if you come from another type of family where it's like you have to be a dentist or <laughs> you have to be a doctor and all you want to do is really be like, um, I don't know, like the Rubik's Cube speed champ or something, well, you're probably going to have some issues, right? You're going you're gonna to be like a lot of people who you're going to be in your early 20s or your late teens and you're going to be languishing at whatever school you go to and kind of floundering and feeling directionless and feeling torn between what you should be doing and what you want to be doing. And you can just get fucking knocked around in the undertow, right? And you can make a lot of decisions about your life and your future that you think are in your best interest, but are really in the interest of what somebody else wants for you. Um, I feel like there was another point that comes out of this. (laughs) Um, But it's like, until you've done a lot of work in therapy. And it's, it sounds weird because when people talk about therapy, it, it, the way it's structured now, it's such a privilege, right? Like how could something that's such a privilege be so essential, um, to your life and your self-actualization and your decision-making process? I don't know. I don't know why that is. Um, in a way it feels like I'm saying the only way to get fit is to have a personal trainer when it's like, really, you could just eat right and, uh, and, uh, and jog. I don't know what it is, well, actually, let's think about it. I was going to say, I don't know what it is about therapy that makes it unique in that way. Um, but I'll, I'll just put it this way. Um, there's something about that process of really talking through these things with like a dispassionate third-party person and having the things that you're saying reflected to you by somebody who's not part of the constellation of your family, who's probably already inculcated into a lot of the same ways of thinking, and just experiencing how they experience what you're saying that can really change things for you very quickly right it's like the same thing that can happen if you're if you live in a small town and you're surrounded by people who have the same views as you the same political stances of you the same cultural values as you and then you go to college some and you're in a you're in a a social circle with people who are from all over the country who may have different values in you and you say something politically incorrect and they look at you like whoa 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 it's like you go oh shit i didn't realize that where I was coming from or where I've been at or the things that shape me may not fly everywhere else. You know, and I, I've had those experiences with therapy. I, the, one of the most formative things in therapy for me, <clears throat> and I don't, I don't want to give my mom a hard time about this. I think she would find it funny in her own way as well. But my mom used to buy cigarettes for me. She used to buy me and my brother cigarettes. And I remember the first time I said that in therapy, it was just something I said dismissively. I said it conversationally. 
And my therapist had such a strong reaction to it, it like stopped the conversation. I was saying, well, you know, my mom was buying cigarettes for me at that time. And my therapist just like started. And I was like, that's criminal. And it was like her, and I don't know the word for it, her incredulousness at that statement really showed me like, oh shit, that is kind of crazy. And it made me think about it. Like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, I guess that is kind of fucking weird, huh? And just that little reaction, it, that was the beginning. It was like a crack in my system of thinking that could never, it's like a bell you cannot unring. Like that was a catalyst for a whole different way of, of thinking, you know? It was almost, and, and I've, this is a whole, this is a too big a topic to really elaborate on, but I think it's enough to say that I've, I've thought about this. I've thought of families and not just, well, I should say largely dysfunctional ones, but I think all families are like this. Families are like cults, right? You are born into them. Many of us are born into them. Not the ones that we join later in life. but For many of us, we're born into them, or religious lives and cults. We're born into them. We don't decide what they are. They influence all of our thinking. They form our values and our worldview. And it's not until we're outside of them or that we dare to uh, question them that we realize that it's weird, like you hear from like kids who were raised in Scientology and it was like they genuinely were, they were raised to believe and, and take very seriously the idea that psychiatrists are people who like drive around in unmarked vans and just snatch people up with butterfly nets and take them to institutions and insane asylums. Like that's what they're told about the world and that's what they believe. It's kind of like that 12 monkeys thing. Have you seen the movie 12 monkeys from like 96 or something with Bruce Willis? But it's like, Spoiler alert, and I think, I don't really remember this exactly, but what I'm thinking is, you know, everybody's living underground because they're told that the air is toxic, right? And they they can't go outside without hazmat suits or something. But I think there's a moment where it's like, there's a tear in Bruce Willis's hazmat suit and he realizes, oh shit, actually everything's okay. This is a system of thinking we've just been, that's been impressed upon us to control us. Um, and it's it may sound heavy handed, but I genuinely think that's what families are. What, knowingly or not, or actually I should say definitely not knowingly. These are usually things that are not done knowingly. Parents usually raise their kids with, in a world in which they are comfortable. That I mean, we talk about power as if it's just a pejorative, but I mean, it's something like that. You know, and some parents are very receptive to feedback and are willing to understand the ways in which um, the way they raise their kids has impacted them, oftentimes negatively. And some people are not. Some parents are cult leaders, <laughs> right? And they believe in the system and they've, you know, it's almost like, have you ever spoken with a psychic who genuinely believes that they're psychic? Or I was, I was talking about Miss M on the last episode who believe that they talk to the dead. Now, I don't know if Miss M genuinely believes that or if that's just some bullshit she leads people. But it's like you see TV psychics or speakers, people who speak to the dead. And they, I think on some level they, they, they started off knowing it was bullshit, but they, and they know when they fail, but on some level they also have like, they kind of believe their own bullshit, right? Like even faith healers, um, many of them are charlatans, but I think some people really believe their own bullshit. And there's something akin to that within family systems also. Um, so I don't know. I'm trying to bring this back to relationships. Um, um, it's important to... Yeah, I don't know. Is it too simplistic to say it's important to think through these things? Because, you know, like one thing people talk about is Catholic guilt. Like, oh, I just go around with a lot of guilt and um, 
um, because that's how I was raised. I was raised to feel guilty about things. And it's like, well, if you really think through those things and your motivations to do things, you're going to give yourself a really hard time if you keep telling yourself it's a sin. Whereas you can actually get to this place where you realize, oh, actually, that's, pretty, that's a pretty normal impulse. Outside of this system of, of Catholic thinking, that's a pretty normal impulse. And it's actually not that bad that I do it. Um, uh, that can be a liberating thing. I think there's something like that in families. For many people who go to therapy, there is a great unlearning that happens where you sort of unweave the web of how you were raised and you never get it done entirely, right? Um, one, no matter how bad your parents are, they probably did a few things right. And so there are some structural things that they provided you with that are helpful. I'm not saying it doesn't happen that, I mean, some parents are just a train wreck from day one. But they probably did some things right. And even the things that they did wrong, you never fully unring them, I think. There are some things that happen to you that are just so ingrained, you'll never... You'll never dish them completely. But you can acknowledge them when they do arise and try to navigate them. Um, But it's important to know what your operating system is, right? And when it comes to making the big decisions, really think about who you're making the decision for, right? Like, we've talked about this. It's crazy to me when I read criticism of the podcast, and there's a few bad reviews, but it's like, when people talk about me as if I'm not really self-aware, like, you cannot like me, that's fine, but people who talk about me like I'm some elitist or that I, um, uh, you know, someone said I use a vocabulary to demonstrate my decades of education. Your boy's at junior college right now, right? Like I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying I'm not smart. Your boy's smart as fuck, but I'm not really educated yet. I will be, but I'm not really educated. You know, I've had some great education, you know, private middle school, uh, I went to a boarding school for one year, but then I went to a fucking public high school that I left to go to an alternative charter school, which was a fucking joke. And then I languished at junior college for four years before I left without a degree. I went back for another semester a couple years later and didn't even fucking finish that. And now I'm back at junior college and I'm fucking killing it and I'll continue to kill it, but, um, not educated. (sighs) Where am I going with this? Um, I don't know. Um, Again, probably one of those moments where I'll say, damn, man, if only you had stuck with it, you would have gone to a good place. Um, But yes, I'm just talking about this idea that therapy is a great unlearning. Um, And yeah, especially at important moments of your life, you have to know who you're living for. You know, because you will make decisions. And in a way, at the time... Wanting to even go back to school when I wasn't ready for it was I was satisfying somebody else. I should have just been, I should have just kept telling myself to pursue, pursue music. And I'll actually say this. I've spent a lot of time, and I think it's been self-defeating, waffling with this uncertainty of wanting to do things for myself and, then, and actually trying to make myself do things for other people. You know, and I'm not saying that we can never know what an alternative future would have been. It's easy for me to say, oh, if I had just believed in myself more, I would have been successful. But who the fuck knows? You know? Um, But the idea... um, Oh, I think what I'm trying to say is just waffling between, like, living for yourself and living for other people. It can be like, if you have to jump a great distance, like, imagine yourself jumping from rooftop rooftop to rooftop. And it's like, you have to get a certain amount of speed to make that jump. And once you do it, you should just sort of do it, right? Be confident and leap. If you waffle, like if you see these fail videos of like people on a rope swing or something, 
It's like if you waffle at the last minute, if you don't trust the process, if you don't trust your intuition, you're going to fucking eat shit. Like if you stutter step before the big leap, you're not going to make it. You know? If you're on the rope swing and you swing out, you should let go. But if you freak out and just keep holding on and let go a little bit late, you're going to go smashing into the fucking hill that you just, uh, that you swung from. You know what I mean? Um, life can be like that. Right? But it's like if you happen to, like if you live under a family where you think you have to be a dentist, you could go to dental school and look up 10 years into your, your career and decide that you really wanted to be a fucking juggling mime. Right, and that actually would have made you happy. And instead, you're fucking, uh, you're cleaning my teeth. Right. Um, so, yeah, is it simplistic to say you have to live for yourself? Um, dude, I don't know. There's like a fucking children's party going outside my front door right now. Anyway, maybe it sounds patronizing, but I just think, I don't know. I think people should reflect deeply on the formative influences of their life and what's, I don't know, feeding their decision-making process. Because I don't know, I think a lot of us think that we're, you know, steering the ship. I think a lot of us think we're sort of in the driver's seat of our own lives. But I think many of us look up, usually when we're adults, and decide, holy shit, I've been living for someone else my whole goddamn life. I think the weird thing is, too, is because I think I'm someone who's capable of these types of, like, insights, I sort of want them for other people, right? And so I'm disappointed when I sort of meet people who, like, I don't know. I just imagine for some people it's, like, on some, like, even Trump. Like, Trump is someone who it's, like, he, like, for someone who's full of shit, which he is, it's like you want to think that on some level, if you could just if you could just say it the right way, if you could get him in front of the right therapist, if you just could say, almost like fucking, if you could say the right Latin phrase over a cracker and turn it into the fucking body of Christ, if someone could just say the right words or hit Trump with enough insight, it could change his mind. But it's like some people don't have that capacity. Either they're so entrenched in their own defenses and whatever model of the world they built for themselves that feeds them whatever... Um, image of themselves they need to survive. And I think that's genuinely what it is. It's a survival instinct. It's a, you know, we call them coping strategies, right? But there is nothing that can unshake that. And actually, holy shit, the real Jedi perspective is even people who we want to change. If you were to put a crack in that uh, coping strategy or that defense mechanism, it could be their undoing. It could actually do more harm than good. I mean, I've thought about this even in small ways in my own life. It's like um, I've talked about this idea that I have this abiding sense that there's just something fundamentally wrong with me. And even in my therapy, I talk about this. Sometimes we'll be talking about something where my therapist is like, well, maybe this has to do with your idea that something's wrong with you. And, and what would it feel like um, to, to believe that nothing was wrong with you? And it's like in those moments, you know, I talk about it like that moment in Memento, right? Memento is the movie where the guy has no short-term memory or maybe no long-term memory, but he can't make new memories. And so he'll be in a situation, he has to take photos of things, but it's like, if he's in any one situation long enough, after about three or four minutes, he sort of goes foggy and kind of can't remember how he ended up there. It's like I literally feel that starting to get traction in my brain. It's like that. Well, my therapist is like, well, what would it be like to believe that nothing was wrong with you? It's like I, it's like all of a sudden I've gotten a hit of, uh, 
of uh, the Twilight gas shit they give you when you get a colonoscopy. <laughs> How many of our listeners have had a fucking colonoscopy? Your boy has. Um, but it's like that. It's like you're in this Twilight thing where all of a sudden you're like, well, where am I? And I think that's itself is a defense mechanism. Right? There's something about the way I experience myself, how I've coped with the world. However, I've, my sense of self that I've formed, for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm saying it's to survive on some level, is what drives this sort of mechanism, I think. Um, if that is not there, if I remove whatever sense of self I built for myself, if that disappears, there's literally nothing there. And I know it sounds weird because we're talking about kind of like ephemeral things like the way we experience ourselves and the architecture of our brain and it all sounds very woo-woo and this is why some people hate therapy. But I, I think these things actually exist. You know, I think they're, I don't know if you'd say like empirically identifiable. I don't know what you call it, frankly. I'm just saying this is how I experience myself and there's something like therapy. I'm going to fucking lose a lot of you on this, but it's almost like when I talk about the Tao. Like the reason Chinese philosophy is is perfect for me and why I like Taoism or even Confucianism is when we talk about the Tao, there's, there's um, one, there's something humanistic about Confucianism. You know, it's both touches on the numinous and the sort of ephemeral and, um, you know, the, the fringes of knowing, but it doesn't talk about it with, with any certainty, right? It sort of talks about the Tao as if, you know, the before the manifestation, right? And it just sort of acknowledges, yeah, there seems to be something beyond our consciousness um, that we can't really identify. And actually, when we identify it, we're not talking about it anymore. We're talking about something, uh, we're talking about the nameless. We're talking about something that's not identifiable. And yet, we have this sense that it's there. But that's really all we can knowingly say about it, right? Whereas like Christianity will say, well, it's God and this is what he wants for us and these are his anointed people and these are his holy books. Chinese philosophy, Taoism, there's none of that. It's just, there seems to be this ephemeral thing that when we tap into it, it seems to have a power on our life and, and uh, you know, in what ways can we sort of bring it into our own being? That's, that's sort of my takeaway from it. But there's something like that with therapy too. It's, it can feel strange to sit across from somebody and talk about these things and feel comp and not feel silly, right? Like you're just talking about some woo-woo nonsense magic stuff, but it's like, it is true. And it, it's, it's, it's sort of unfair, and I feel weird saying it, because I also know that there's people who sit across from somebody who they talk about their chakras and their healing energy and their auras, and it's like, you feel like there's no justice in the world, because it's like, if those people can sit across from each other and, and, and feel like they're talking about something real and meaningful, like, what evidence do I have? right? It's like you get a bunch of Mormons in a room, and I've seen it because I've spent a lot of time with them, but it's like they talk about, I believe Gordon B. Hinckley is a prophet of God, and I believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, and I believe that the Book of Mormon is his scripture, and all that sort of bullshit, and it's like they all look at each other and are like, yeah, man, yeah. What guarantees do I have like that the way that I'm living and the way that I choose to live my life are not fucking bullshit also? Um... Maybe you can't. Maybe that's why we have to fuck. I don't know. Maybe that's why we have to be accepting, right? Maybe that's why diversity is important. But it's like, what do you do when those things conflict, right? I don't fucking know, man. I feel my brain sort of spinning out of control. Um, the point I was driving at with all this, though, I was talking about relationships. I was talking about compromise. Um, but I was just talking about this idea that, I don't know, compromise and fairness can have a very 
strong influence on our decision-making process. But it all means nothing if it doesn't make you happy. At the end of the day, that should be um, the driving force of your decisions. You know, doesn't mean, or fulfilling is probably a better word. Like sometimes happiness is not even the benchmark of a good decision. Is it fulfilling? Do I feel better after doing it? Um, and I think what I'm trying to say, the way I experience my relationship, and I believe my girlfriend's on board, but uh, we'll keep checking in about it. <laughs> but the way I feel about my relationship, and I, I kind of want this for everybody. There are many ways in which we're different. And I know for many other people, those could be deal breakers. Like, you may be listening to this and go, oh, shit, you don't like to travel? She does? That shit's fucking doomed. But I'm saying that could be true, but it could also not be true, right? Like, I believe that there are more than enough ways in which me and my girlfriend are perfect for each other, each other that we could build a life together. But I can only make that decision for myself. You know, I can't tell my girlfriend how she should feel about an experience. She has to decide that for herself. But that's a scary thing. Um, and the reason it's scary for me is because I have to sort of advocate for myself in a way. And that's bizarre. You know, it's too, it's very, you know, in, in in most areas of my life, I deputize someone to tell me that I'm doing well or that I'm doing enough. My therapist, clearly, I want them to tell me that I'm doing a good job. Um, she's tried to reflect that that's not her job, right? Her job is to help me support myself, right? Like to, to sort of, uh, kind of confer that responsibility back on me in a lot of ways, but it's also like teachers. You know, I was talking with somebody else about a chemistry teacher that we both had and, and, um, uh, she was saying like how hard he was and how unfair. And I, we, I know we've talked about this person. I can't remember their name, but, um, I was saying, I just look at the chemistry teacher and say, oh, this is what he wants of his students. And I'll just be that. You know, and then I'll show up for my anthropology class and I'll say, oh, this is what my anthropology teacher wants from me. So I'll be that. You know, I just sort of look to other people to tell me who to be. You know, and so in my relationship, if my girlfriend wants to wants to travel more. I just tell myself, OK, man, you got to travel more. But it's like that doesn't that's not doesn't make me happy. Some of it's great. Like I said, I've loved all the trips that we've taken. I'm happy to take as many more, but how happy would I be if, if my girlfriend asked me to double down on these things? I don't think I'd be happy. Maybe in time, but definitely not now. And if I asked myself to do that, it, would just, it wouldn't be fair to me. But, but that's, what I'm, that's what I'm trying to identify. That's the hard part for me. It's hard for me to be fair to myself and acknowledge the things that I actually want for myself, I'm allowed to want. Again, it sounds so fucking... Psycho badly, but the things I want are I'm I'm allowed to want those things. And I would even argue, and maybe this is just uh, I'm defending myself here, but it's like if you're listening to that and you sort of scoff at it and sort of cross your arms, and I would I would really urge you to think about that. You know, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm reminded of something. I have a music friend named Leah. She's uh, really talented. But she's also a little hippy-dippy. And I remember around the time that I first met her, she was performing on stage, and she said, she prefaced one of her songs with this, I don't know, kind of story, just kind of talking about it. It was kind of like a VH1 storyteller's moment where you're saying, oh, this song's about this, and she made this statement where she said something about, you know, we heal inside of relationships. 
And I remember when she said that, I scoffed, like, to myself. I thought, oh, that's a bunch of fucking hippy-dippy bullshit. But now that in, I'm later in life, I realize, oh, I actually, I, I actually really believe that. You know, a lot of us spend our lives trying to work up to some point before we, excuse me, before we qualify for a relationship. Or like, once, oh, once I fix X, Y, and Z about myself, then I'll be allowed to date. But it's like, it never works that way. You have to find yourself with someone who already loves you for who you are and learn to trust that. You know, you'll spend the first part of the relationship trying to, you feel like you're faking it and you're, you keep trying to be the person that you think they want you to be. But then you like the real Jedi perspective is that they loved the person that they met. Hopefully. Um, and so that's the kind of challenge. I think, the, I think the only thing I'm trying to identify in my relationship is I'm acknowledging that there are many things my girlfriend wants me to be, but I'm trying to, and maybe I'm just speaking to myself when I tell her this, but it's like I'm trying to say that um, there are reasons we're together. There, there, there are reasons the relationship has gone on for as long as it has, and the neighbor's fucking dog is barking. Um, but that's okay. We're going to finish up here in a second anyway. But there are... Maybe I'm just talking to myself when I say this, but it's like, there are areas of difference, and that's okay. But um, it's up for you and I to decide what's important, you know, what points of contact already exist that are enough for us, maybe not for other people. I don't know, can you guys hear that dog? Anyway, let's fucking wrap it up, man. Anyway, this is this is like the story of the podcast, right? I tried to build some poignant uh, conclusion, and there's some interruption. So, um, man, I hate ending on this note, but I think it's going to have to be this way. Um, let's just put it this way: to be continued. We won't put a period at the end of this conversation. We'll put an ellipses. So, um, yeah, that was fun. I don't know if it was cathartic or really meaningful, but um, I'm happy to have done it. So. Uh, let's do this. Let's uh, end here. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others should also. And um, yeah, think of one person in your life you think would like the podcast and send them your favorite episode. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. But uh, until then, thank you for your time. And ciao for now.